From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from Dublin today is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who is calling in from London. On today's episode of Everything About Hydrogen, we are speaking with Paul Bogers, Vice President for Hydrogen at Shell. As a company, Shell needs no introduction, but the company's work and investments in the hydrogen space make it a global leader in the energy transition, especially when it comes to the hydrogen component. Paul is amongst the executives at Shell that are working to bring their hydrogen vision to fruition, and it is great to have him with us on the show today. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at at about hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. Okay, guys. Well, it's been a little while since we've uh, been able to get together and record our intros and outros. I think we, uh, <laughs> Patrick and I, spoke with Paul uh, over at Shell, oh, oh, more than a month ago. So this one, uh, fortunately, we covered a lot of topics, big picture, really interesting conversation with Paul, but we're just getting this one out a little bit later than usual. But uh, Patrick, since you are calling in from Dublin, we just wanted to check in. How are you doing, man? How's things in Dublin? Yeah, it feels like the Mediterranean here right now, given the temperature, but uh, all's well. Nice to nice to be back in Ireland. And he's not just talking about the heat of the uh, energy market either. Oh, yeah. Well, like, <laughs> this is it. I, I, you know, I, I had the good fortune to swing through London as well and, and run into uh, a certain Mr. Jackson there uh, on the on the way through. So, so you guys are you guys are partying without me is what's happening here. I get it. I see. I see. No one told me about that. That's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you're, you're so busy kind of dominating the U.S. that, uh, you know, it's uh, hard to <laughs> hard to find time in the schedule between all of the private jetting and the you know, holidays on the beautiful U.S. East Coast. And yeah, I mean, you know, living the dream, man. We're just trying to squeeze in around you. Says says the guy who was just in Spain for a wedding. How are you doing, Chris? Nice of you to chime in. <laughs> yeah, I am all right. I am, uh, like Patrick, um, struggling to adjust to Mediterranean weather temperature in a city that was built for very cold or very mild, bland weather. Um, which is an interesting experience. I don't think I've never had my team so motivated to be inside our office, but I think the air conditioning is probably <laughs> the bigger part of it. I could say uh, that's a that's an added. It's a fringe. It's what we call a fringe benefit, Chris. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is quite funny, um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's it's hot at the moment, um, and obviously not just the politics either. I mean, God, I went away for three days, and the country seems to have fallen apart. So that was a good effort. Um. <laughs> so it shows. I think I don't know if that's causal or or correlative, but we we can come back to that on a different podcast, Chris. Well, indeed, uh, but also you know, in the short period since uh, the last uh, recording that we did here, there's been some pretty big news at Shell. I mean, the first major scale green hydrogen project to reach FID is a 200 megawatt Netherlands project. I mean, wow, that really is a bit of a step up, isn't it, guys? Yeah, that's a pretty big announcement. I'd say it fits into the headline territory. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, it's um, it's one for the you know the wake up and and pay attention moment as we uh, kind of step into uh, the next phase of all of this. But yeah, big project, big deliverable. Um, looking forward to 
to seeing it getting uh, rolled out and underway. It's um, it, it's interesting because they haven't they haven't released who the supplier was for that, have they? Don't believe they have. It's an interesting one just for scale because I think people don't always understand this, but like you know, a project of that size, right, in this current market, is about a fifth of ITM's gigafactory capacity, right? So that's you know, single largest PEM electrolysis facility in the in the market, and that one project would be twenty percent of its full capacity in a normal year. Um, which is which is start, it's starting to get quite decent. I think it is also, to my knowledge, the first hundred megawatt plus green hydrogen project that's actually reached FID. Um, slight fudge, obviously, that it's you know uh, it kind of fits in with a large corporate portfolio within Shell, and I imagine a decent chunk of the capitals from their own balance sheet. But still, um, you know, coming on the back of uh, the excellent interview that you guys did, um, you know, it suddenly uh, has shaken people up. Had a lot of people talking about it, so. Anyway, I'll, uh, sorry, Andrew, I'm getting in your way. No, no, not at all, not at all. I think, well, let's not steal, uh, let's not steal Paul's thunder. He did a great interview, it was a great conversation with Patrick and I, so uh, let's just jump right into that. We'll catch up on the other end. Okay, so Paul, thank you so much for making the time. It's an uh, absolute delight to have you on the show. Wanted to give you just a quick minute or two to uh, introduce yourself uh, and a little bit about what you do and uh, and what Shell what Shell does. May not need too much of an introduction, but let's give it a shot. Awesome! Thanks so much, uh, Andrew, and uh, delighted to be here and uh, and speak about my favorite topic, hydrogen. So my name is uh, Paul Bogers. I am based in London, and I have the grandiose title of Vice President Hydrogen for Shell. And it's not every day that you get a, a job title that in you know involves one of the first elements of the periodic table. And um, you know, hydrogen is not new to Shell. We've been in in this business in first of all producing hydrogen, but of course also selling hydrogen to to customers for a number of decades. And we've learned a tremendous amount uh, about how to deal with hydrogen safely, how to understand how to you know. Uh, get it into customers' vehicles, and the ins and outs of, uh, of, of where hydrogen can be used outside of mobility, uh, of course. And we truly believe that the time for hydrogen um, to play a major role in the energy system it has come. There have been different waves of enthusiasm for, for hydrogen. Um, people will recognize that, that uh, perhaps it hasn't always come true uh, to its full potential, but we've uh, we're really ramping up activity and we're really kind of leaning into you know what the hydrogen economy could uh, could look like. So so Paul, maybe maybe to dive in a little bit more into the uh, the hydrogen team at, at Shell, maybe can you can you tell us where where the team sits actually? You know, I suppose both geographically but also kind of structurally or strategically. Yeah, th- thanks a lot, Patrick. And and what we of course. Uh, have as our strongest mantra for for the hydrogen business and and in fact for uh, a lot of the downstream businesses in Shell is that you work from the customer backwards. So that means we have deployments of, of folks in key markets that we see have the the most potential for hydrogen. So that means here, you know, here in the UK, but also in the Netherlands and in Germany, we've got quite a, a significant staffing level in in engineers and commercial folks. Uh, of course, can't ignore the California and the West Coast of the U.S. We have teams in in both, um, you know, L.A. and in in San Francisco. We have a team of engineers in in Boston, north of the border, uh, folks looking after the Canadian market, uh, and then of course a little bit uh, uh, further towards the east, 
uh, a budding team in in China and and China in in as in many things kind of stands out on its own when it comes to to hydrogen. So we have a team uh, in Beijing that is that is working uh, up those opportunities. So those those are really the offices where we have people. We have uh, what we call talent density, but then we also have uh, you know a, a few folks in what we see are going to be core markets for hydrogen. So whether that's Japan. Uh, Korea, and of course, you know, a lot of activities in the Middle East around becoming big exporters of hydrogen. So when I came into the role, we were very focused on California, you know, kind of Northwest Europe. And that has expanded even in the last two or three years to have really, truly a global team. And so let's circle back to what a part of your, uh, part of your first answer uh, Paul, you talked about how hydrogen has seen cycles and has uh, been on the radar before, but now it's back in a, in a big way. And so maybe building on that, why is Shell looking at hydrogen now and why is this a more serious cycle? And you know, where does where does hydrogen fit into the future of Shell and the future? Really a bigger picture, I suppose, Paul, if you want to tackle this one, where does it fit on that global scale? Uh, going forward as part of the energy transition. Yeah, and it's, and it's a really important kind of question to answer. And the question I, I get very often at conferences is like, you know, tell me exactly what percentage of the energy system will be covered by hydrogen in 2035, in 2050, in 20. And we have our scenarios team that, that you know, wrestles with those questions uh, uh, on a daily basis. It's a very hard uh, nut to crack, right? So we believe that it's 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 definitely going to be double-digit percentage of of replacing a lot of potential energy sources. But my favorite saying is that, you know, hydrogen is the Swiss army knife of the energy transition. And if you know a Swiss army knife, it's got all these little tools in it, and some of them you don't quite know what they're there for, right? So what exactly will be the role for, for hydrogen? Which applications will go first? Where is there a compelling business case to move uh, from from the current energy source to hydrogen? Where is it even kind of practical or affordable to do so? You know, there are, there are still a lot of open questions, open switches, which makes it exciting on the one hand, because you have all of these opportunities ahead of you. It also makes it a little bit daunting because it's, it's sometimes really hard to see how, where you start uh, with, um, uh, with, with, with hydrogen, which industries, which sectors kind of will go, will go first. But we, we do believe that the combination of a radical reduction in the cost of renewables that that lead on to you know potentially a, uh, a price point of the hydrogen where it becomes a viable energy vector, combined with the sense of urgency uh, around uh, climate change, and you know on top of that, of course, it's always a three-way thing between cost, climate. It's also energy security and building quite a resilient kind of energy system. And if if there's one thing that the world has woken up to in the last uh, couple of months is that it's never it never was a simple one issue problem we're trying to solve you need to solve what we sometimes call in shell as the trilemma of you know climate change cost of energy the affordability of energy and uh, supply security and if one of those things falls by the wayside you don't have an energy system that works yeah, and maybe maybe to follow on a little on the on the trilemma piece because you know all three of those those aspects are kind of critical in in in, in kind of a broad energy con- uh, context today. Uh, you know, 
how are you, how are you going about engaging those kind of those kind of challenges and particularly thinking obviously of the resiliency piece like you know there must have been an awful lot of conversations and engagement how how have you i suppose um you know you've obviously projects like refine and and things like that but like how are you how are you engaging the both i suppose the policy space around that and also then you know making those investments to actually secure that resiliency going forward yeah and i think you know you you have to kind of have the humility of starting small and and trying to to mature the projects the technology the policy making and uh, sometimes as my boss likes to say you know we're building this plane as we're flying it and i think that that's that's true for a lot of things in the context of the the energy transition and you mentioned you know kind of we've got a few projects that we are already kind of operating today we're learning a lot about for instance how do you run these electrolyzer assets in a very intermittent way where it's trying to follow the uh the profile of the the wind turbines or the the renewable assets that they're that they're uh, they're linked to and that's one thing to do that technically but also from a policy point of view you don't want to over constrain the problem and make it really hard for these first projects to kind of come to to fruition and and i think it's even today that in Europe, this piece of legislation called the Delegated Act is, uh, is is meant to kind of clarify what kind of green power you can use for your your first projects to kind of get the um, the, the system uh, kickstarted. But what we've learned over the years is that uh, to be fully integrated, it actually makes sense to to work the demand from the demand backward, but have you know kind of the the supply of affordable energy at the other side. And uh, one of the, the best examples was a project that we built pretty much in record pace, you know, from signing the, the deal to having it operational was 13 months for a 20 megawatts uh, electrolyzer unit. It was supplying about 300 buses that were ready just in time for the Winter Olympics uh, near Beijing. And what was really cool about that project, not only did we learn a lot about how to build it faster, uh, you wouldn't be surprised in China. It also was more kind of uh, it was cheaper uh, than than anywhere else in the world. But but also we could really see how the integration from cheap renewable power in that part of China could lead to a, a premise where the local bus company, because of course after the Olympics we don't want those buses to to just be parked on the side. Now they now provide the public transport, uh, so zero emission transport for that part of uh, of of China. Uh, kind of going forward. So building these small islands, if you like, where you have demand and supply really closely coupled, we see as a really good starting point for for the much bigger kind of transformational stuff that hydrogen has to do in the uh, energy transition. Yeah, and I think that makes an awful lot of sense. But but as a quick follow on, when we start thinking about those very big projects and thinking about them for every other sector, including including the the traditional uh, areas of focus for Shell. You know what? What are the biggest challenges in building these projects versus kind of the the kind of uh, conventional projects that that you would have built historically? You know, like is there anything that we need to kind of go change today that will help us enable these projects come into being faster? Yeah, no, no thanks for the question, Patrick, because that that occupies a, a large part of, uh, of of my team, and I'd say there's probably three overarching challenges that we we see. One is compared to other projects that, you know, uh, I always say that anything in hydrocarbons has got about a you know, century and a half of a head start of anything new that you want to do. Um, so the supply chain that we work with is still pretty immature. 
So there are now more companies, you know, kind of jumping in, building electrolyzers, but it's not just the electrolyzers. Also, how do you get the hydrogen from the point of production to its end use, whether that's an industrial user, but particularly if it's, you know, trying to get it into, for instance, a hydrogen truck, uh, all the steps you have to get to around compression, tube trailers, uh, hydrogen refueling sites. Uh, the sites that we're building today in California are double the capacity uh, from when we started and they're half the cost. But we believe we need to make at least another leap, a similar leap, before you can kind of start to talk about a reliable kind of uh, equivalent to diesel. So the immaturity of the supply chain is really something that the industry has to, to work on. I'd say the second thing is is uh, the the cost uh, picture of the you know the total supply chain and the interface there also with um, you know having to go down a learning curve in the same way that renewables have done that over the last uh, couple of decades. And I always say learning curves don't get built in spreadsheets from 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 analysts and uh, you know you can show nice bar charts and pie charts around how it's all going to happen because surely hydrogen is like solar. There's no reason to believe that it has to be. You have to build the projects to take the cost out and do all of the engineering work around modularization and making things better. So the supply chain needs to mature. The cost needs to come out, come down by actually building the, pro the, um, the projects. And the third angle is really kind of having clear and unambiguous regulation. And uh, this is not about giving politicians a ribbon cutting opportunity where they say we gave a capital grant so that you could build this asset. We're way beyond that phase. You need to have clear line of sight of regulation going forward on what are things like contracts for for difference or or um, policy incentives that make the business case close for these much larger projects. Because otherwise there will be a real kind of um, bottleneck of these you know kind of big companies willing to invest willing to double down on hydrogen but just not getting a closing business case that they can present to their boards to kind of go ahead with the investment so regulation and that includes things like being really clear about the um, you know there's this color war going on in hydrogen around you know how green is it we really? just unambiguous rules around what carbon intensity of hydrogen uh, do you need to qualify for these things and then move on. And some countries are better than that than, than others in just having that uh, clear line of sight of what the regulation uh, should be. So it's supply chain, cost, but above all kind of clear regulation that I think we need um, to uh, to get going. Yeah, and so that I think personally, I do not envy the task of having to build a new supply chain uh, while the old one is not working to start with, uh, Paul. So uh, <laughs> we can certainly relate to that standpoint on our side. But um, where does Shell see itself? Uh, maybe, again, a multi-part question, but where does Shell see itself fitting into the hydrogen ecosystem in the future? And by that, I mean is it financier? Is it supplier? Is it distributor? Is it off-taker? Is it where do you guys sit? Or is it all of the above uh, kind of scenario? Yeah, I, I think whenever you enter a, uh, a new market, you have to explore all the different uh, parts of, of these future value chains, right? So what, one of the, the coolest things about Shell, and I've had the privilege, I've worked here for 21, 21 or 22 years, I've worked across upstream and downstream and different parts. And you see this integrated value because over time we've come really good at, you know, having a position with customers and, and having a trading, um, you know, 
kind of function in between and then having uh, uh, having an upstream piece of that. So we, we see hydrogen has many of the same aspects of uh, any other molecule that we, we sell. Um, that's not to say that we, we will be able to participate everywhere and in every aspect of the, the value chain that's, that is being built. And our mantra is still, as I mentioned, really the starting point should be kind of finding a, a, um, a willing customer, somebody who is, who is able to also be an early adopter and, uh, and, and be willing to pay a premium uh, to get um, adapt that process um, to, to using hydrogen. So working from the customer backwards, then you try to build a number of these integrated value chains. So we're definitely going to be there at the point where the customer takes the, um, the product. We want to serve the, the, those customers in the same way that we serve our, our customers today. It's one of the benefits we have. And then you work all the way backwards to being integrated all the way up to um, you know, the renewables and the investments in a large-scale renewable um, kind of plays to feed the green electrons that will make the, um, uh, make the green hydrogen. Probably the coolest thing that we're working on is beside you know, thinking about doing that in, in let's say, Northwest Europe and having a, a, a coupling of offshore wind to an electrolyzer is how would you ship this energy across much larger distances? And earlier this year, we had this ship that set sail between uh, Japan and went to Australia. And the reason I call it the coolest project is that, you know, it's a, at a hundred and two hundred and fifty three degrees C below, you know, kind of zero, right? So it's twenty degrees above the absolute kind of zero, you know, mark. And I, I call it the biggest floating thermos flask in the world. Uh, but the, the amazing thing is that it could be done safely. So we loaded and offloaded this liquid hydrogen um, between Australia and and Japan. And it's not to say that that is the the end solution, but actually figuring out how you carry hydrogen between parts of the world that will always have cheaper uh, renewables and plentiful kind of natural resources and those demand centers where we have a lot of heavy industry, that, that's going to be a really interesting play, which also really fits quite well with the pioneering spirit of, of, uh, of a lot of things that Shell has done in, uh, in the past. So we've uh, we've talked about the uh, the demand centers and maybe the customers in a in a in a slightly uh, obscure sense. So so we've got to kind of uh, pin you to the the wall and ask you you know what what are the applications that that, that Shell thinks hydrogen will be best for? You know what who are those uh, those target customers, especially for that that early market that you described? Yeah, and and I think this is a this is a key question, Rand. Where where to start? Right. So I think for us. As a customer, it's always easier to start at home or close to home. Um, so we see refining applications. So using our own refinery assets, both in in uh, in Rhineland, in uh, in near Cologne, but also our big refinery in Rotterdam, as as a great place where you start to back out your existing grey hydrogen and you replace it with with low carbon hydrogen. So the the um, the use case in petrochemicals where hydrogen is used as a feedstock. Is probably the sector where you can start. Now, the neat thing is by starting uh, with that anchor demand, you can build the facilities much larger. So that brings the cost of the hydrogen down that you can start to couple it to use in, in mobility. And we do see a significant pull on uh, hydrogen in you know, heavy duty trucking. And yes, you can electrify a truck uh, to some extent for, for a lot of use cases for short term deliveries. But the long haul trucking 
uh, and, and building a system that is resilient for um, you know large scale deployment for for you know if you think about how many you know things arrive at our doorstep that have to be shipped over these uh, these distances so the combination of refinery demand plus uh, mobility and heavy goods mobility is probably for us the starting point and then you find you often do that in kind of areas like big ports where you have a combination of, of a lot of heavy industry in one place but also the need for all of these trucks to evacuate the containers and all of the goods that, that come in. So port areas like the port of Rotterdam, port of uh, uh, Hamburg, Vancouver, uh, Long Beach, those are going to be the starting points. And once you've exhausted kind of the use in petrochemicals as a feedstock, uh, same is true for fertilizer, of course. The next big sector that we have a lot of engagement with is steelmaking. The, and what's important there is that Steelmaking doesn't use hydrogen as a feedstock today, but they could. And for every kind of ton of coking coal that you back out of steelmaking, you get a, a much bigger, bigger kind of reduction in CO2 emissions by switching that to, to hydrogen. So that, that's probably one of the sectors where it's not easy because it's, you know, they have to really change their entire steelmaking process. Uh, but that's probably where where there's going to be a big uh, pull also on green steel, you know, at some kind of a premium to bridge the gap between, you know, using coal uh, versus uh, versus hydrogen. And so, Paul, that kind of brings us to the the next uh, bigger. Well, perhaps not the bigger question, but with regard to Shell, uh, you know, we'd like to take the last few minutes and thank you for being very generous with your time with us today. Uh talk about what's the next what's the next move for our guests and their company so uh, to the extent that you can discuss things publicly what is what are the next big steps for shell and where do you guys see the next big announcements coming uh, down the pipeline I know that's asking that's asking for pre-announcement announcements there Paul but where strategically where do you see uh, shell pivoting and, and heading towards in the next uh, in the next couple of years and, and beyond yeah and I think um, w- one of the observations was because we we're in this uh, w- with this terrible war going on in Ukraine uh, you see actually a lot of our plans being accelerated so things that we thought you know will probably be in the, the the second half of this decade we have plenty of time to figure out how to do it technically. I think a lot of those plans are being pulled forward. So beside the the electrolyzers that we have up and running today in in Germany and in China, I think you'll see a lot uh, of announcements coming out with much bigger plays. So I think at least uh, you know 10x capacity of of those, and and those will be in 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 port areas um, and probably in northwest Europe. And then the really exciting plays that that lie beyond that is a really building out a pan-European network of hydrogen refueling sites, because we need to solve that chicken egg problem of uh, the infrastructure and the supply is not there. So people don't feel comfortable really kind of leaning in and and going in for hydrogen trucks. The trucks are not quite ready for prime time yet from the OEMs. But I think in the next couple of years, you will see the network being built, the vehicles coming on the road and Shell playing a very active role in in originating that. And that will be both in Europe as well as in um, uh, the west coast of the uh, of the US and and perhaps also in Canada, and then I think that the third bit to keep an eye out for announcements is is what is the next step in these larger hydrogen uh, import export plays, 
that's probably the biggest aha moment where um, I came into the role thinking we had plenty of time to figure that one out because we would start with much smaller projects and grow them in situ. But if you hear Europe now announcing that, you know, of the 20 million tons of hydrogen that, that, that we believe are required by 2030, 10 million tons would be imported somehow, either via pipeline from, from Norway or from um, uh, North Africa or by ship. That is quite a tall order uh, from where we're sitting. But, you know, expect Shell to play a very active role and, and watch out for some announcements in that, uh, in, in that space as well. Well, that's uh, it's ambitious time, ambitious goals, and, and ambitious times. So appreciate a little bit of insight there. And Paul, we'd be uh, we'd be delighted to have you back on when some of those big announcements come out uh, publicly. So uh, it's an open invitation. So thanks very much for the time, and uh, thanks very much for for speaking with us. Super. Thank you very much. It was a delight. All right, guys. Well, now I get to flip the script and be the uh, the host. Obviously, I missed uh, the chance to be uh, on that particular recording. So uh, maybe starting with, uh, you know, maybe start with Andrew. Shell's obviously a big name, big player in the space, is doing a lot of different things. Anything surprising, you know, I think in terms of, you know, what he was describing or, or maybe just more broadly, is anything about how Shell's behaving in the market a surprise to you? Well, I think surprise would be a strong word, right? Because we, we, it'd be... It'd be disingenuous to say that we haven't been watching Shell with great interest over the past several years. Well, for for much of our lifetimes in the energy world, but when it comes to hydrogen, quite a bit over the past couple of years, right? So we've seen a, a number of these projects of huge scale announced in large scale investments coming from from Shell and other energy majors into the hydrogen space. So I wouldn't say that surprise would be the word, but Certainly, the eagerness and you know the the enthusiasm that that Paul and his team have have uh, have in taking on the hydrogen space and getting involved in large scale deployments of electrolytic hydrogen as well as uh, you know standard production with CCS. I think there are a lot of projects out there that the energy majors are getting involved with that show a lot of confidence in the long term uh, long term trajectory of hydrogen uh, from a number of different production pathways. So. I think it's fascinating to hear how they are approaching it, um, but I don't know that I would say I was surprised by anything. Patrick, would you? Did you feel the same? No, I, I, I don't think surprise. I think it's it's it's, it's a conversation about the, the kind of ambition levels that we're starting to see, right? And you know, it's it's all of a, probably a year now since you know I think it's about a year anyway that that Shell announced a, a ten megawatt uh, expansion to one of their. Uh, existing um, electrolyzer facilities at one of their refineries in, in in Germany, so you know it isn't a surprise in in terms of the the opportunity that's kind of emerged. It's 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 a case of you know, and I'm speaking specifically now that we've seen this large scale announcement and obviously the the topics that that all covered. It's kind of the money where your mouth is moment for for some of this deployment and some of this transition to start happening, and it's and it's wonderful to see and it's wonderful to to hear um but also you know we've seen some of the the kind of the the pre-projects to to where we've come to today and what we're we heard from paul as well what about you chris what's what's your takeaway <laughs> from all of this well you know what's quite interesting is actually just seeing the way that companies are trying to market and position themselves on the green hydrogen 
side of things. So you guys won't know, but um, for any listeners who are coming through Westminster in the UK, there's now uh, Westminster Tube Station has wall-to-wall posters of uh, BP and all that they're doing uh, in Teesside, including their hydrogen project there and a description of their hydrogen project there. And it was quite interesting to see that because it's quite rare to see a company like BP normally advertising too publicly because you know big bad oil companies don't tend to want to draw attention and when they do it's only about a green hydrogen project and bp used to also have a, a light source um, solar farm outside heathrow airport and so i guess seeing shell in the hydrogen space is just quite interesting because it does strike at that thing that for a lot of the oil and gas majors hydrogen is a area where they feel comfortable again that they can sell where they're adding value i think you know the energy crisis has also helped them to play this kind of idea of energy security um and again I've seen quite a few energy companies advertising in that way. But, you know, I think there certainly seems to be more confidence in businesses like Shell and how they talk about what they're doing when they're on the grounds of hydrogen. Um, you know, it's uh, it was, you mentioned I was at this wedding in um, Spain recently. I was at um, the Guggenheim in, in Bilbao and they have this automotive exhibition. And one of the things in there was the old Shell adverts. And it's really strange when you look at the old adverts Shell used to have as a petroleum company when it was sort of not just socially acceptable, but actively encouraged, you know, and they're actually quite funny. You know, there's like a man sitting on the beach going, uh, he sells the shell on the seashore, right? And absolutely terrible fun, but like a sign of confidence. And there's like other posters where there's like Egyptian hieroglyphics and the pharaohs, you know, going shell motor spirit, pharaoh sendeth unto pharaoh gifts of precious spirit. You know, that these massive oil majors used to have so much confidence in the way that they went out and spoke about what they did. And we haven't really seen that until I think recently. And, and listening to the interview, it was just interesting to see how, you know, that sort of confidence about their role in the energy system and their role in the economy, they, they feel so much on stronger ground when they're talking about hydrogen. And I, I think because it cuts across so many things and the scale is sort of bigger and more visual to people than solar or wind, that kind of hope helps as well. Um, and I know that's a little bit rambly, but I, I just think it partly explains why there's been so much enthusiasm for this. Um, you know, and I don't know if anyone ever saw the Shell Ben Van Burden TED talk with uh, Christina Figueres, where he was, uh, you know, made quite an impassioned speech about why he felt that uh, they needed to do more as a business and why they were trying to invest in uh, green hydrogen actually in in Amsterdam. And he was absolutely attacked very aggressively by this um, young woman from uh, Scotland who was sort of saying, you know, she could barely be on the platform with him and she was so disappointed in him and everything he'd done. And um, I don't know how many of you know, or maybe you two don't know, but actually Shell put that up as something on their own intranet for their own staff to see and say like, you know, this is the pressure that we face. This is the people we have to convince and this is who we have to go after and show what kind of impact we can have. Um, and I don't know, it's just quite cool to see in some ways, you know, I, I'm quite often quite harsh on the oil and gas companies, but it is interesting to just see how at least, you know, they see their role in this, how they articulate their position in this and why they think it's important. And for that reason, it was nice to hear, you know, the, the team talk a little bit. Uh, that was what I really enjoyed. Yeah. And let's, let's maybe build on that a little bit and let's take the, the big picture and, and, Think about what do, what do you think? And and Chris, I don't mean to single you out here, but I'll you know maybe maybe I'll start with you sitting where you sit in the hydrogen space. Just a green hydrogen uh, electrolytic hydrogen developer. What do you see? What is the rest of what do the newcomers to the hydrogen industry see as the role for 
the energy majors in this space? How do they contribute the most? And where are they most effective? Other than having the huge amounts of cash to deploy, how do they help in making that energy transition and that clean transition to hydrogen come about? Cool. Well, I mean, I can take a brief step, but I actually think you know, Patrick's work, frankly, with um, RMI and um, you know a number of groups at the UN on the green hydrogen um, sort of workforce, that was a task force that they were involved in there is probably a better example in some ways of the impact these guys can have. I mean, I think what people forget is just the scale of the transition. And I talk about this a lot. You know, we have to, according to UN standards, invest $5 trillion every single year between now and 2030 into new clean energy infrastructure from a base where we invest about $1.5 trillion globally in all energy infrastructure. And only around $300 billion of that is renewable. So we're going to have to go from $300 billion to $5 trillion. And we have to do it in what well, we, we should be doing it now, but we have to do it, you know, pretty damn quick. Uh, and that is just terrifyingly large. And there really are very few organizations and institutions in the world that actually have the capacity to not just like raise that kind of money, but actually to absorb it and to channel it into meaningful projects that can have a global impact. And the frustration that people feel often is that the oil majors are actors who have that capacity and who choose not to use it. And so I think that's where the frustration often comes is, you know, they there is a acceptance from many people, including from my sort of side of the hydrogen economy, that um, they are they are, they have the capacity to move mountains in the market and to move things in a very positive way. But quite often, what we see is them pushing things that actually we think are detrimental. And I think that's where sometimes the frustration lies as a green hydrogen company is that instead of using their balance sheet more frequently to go out and invest in catalyzed projects. Many of these companies wait till the 11th hour. Um, and, you know, I, I'm still staggered why companies like BP have been, or Shell, to be honest, have been waiting for government price support on a lot of these projects when they know they need to go this way anyway. They know they've got the balance sheet and they know they have the technical capacity to do this. And they already take lower than oil returns on their solar and wind portfolios. And they already know some of those institutional investors are supportive of that. So, I'm not saying it's an easy thing for them, but I think it's kind of a very mixed sense of sentiment from people in the industry. We need companies like that to act and to get involved and to help. But quite often, despite the capacity that they have, we don't really see it being enforced enough. And I guess, you know, Shell is perhaps slightly better, I would say, than many of the others. It certainly is more proactive. And I think it is more receptive, certainly than companies like ExxonMobil. But, um, you know, uh, that doesn't mean it can't do more. And I don't know. Uh, Patrick, what would you say? I mean, I think you get more of a global view on this and maybe I'm being overly unfair. No, I think, I think for someone who uh, hedged his bets before he offered the answer, you kind of, you kind of nailed it really. Um, you know, there are, and this is not exclusive to specifically oil and gas, but you know, if you look globally at the companies that are comfortable developing projects of the scale that we will likely need to see developed to be climate aligned that there's there's not an awful lot of them so that means we need new ones and we need uh, probably some of the existing ones to actually transition their business right and to actually engage and um you know i think the the frustration you you flagged chris that that you know we see some uh, quite you know maybe um small steps relative to even you know current investment in in exploration uh, existing exploration business models you know um 
you know frustrates people i don't think that's necessarily unreasonable but but your point as well i think you know there's moments when you're you're looking at this transition and saying this is your pathway or 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 that's it um you know why why are you kind of slow rolling on this a little bit so those 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 are frustration elements that certainly kick in i think i think you know, uh, you've got to applaud the good, right? So when, you know, Shell deploy, you know, I think it was the 10, the 10 megawatt that I mentioned earlier, that's, that's good. The, the 20, I think that they've deployed possibly in China of electrolyzers and now 200 more in, 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 in the Netherlands. These, these are good things, but it's, you know, it's got to accelerate and it has to accelerate globally. And, and, you know, we'll take the, we'll take the positives, but that doesn't mean that, you know, people aren't going to be, you know, skeptical to some degree of, of some of the oil majors. And, you know, part of that is born out of history as much as anything else. So, um, you know, take this as a, as a positive step, but also one that, you know, we'll need to see an awful lot more of, um, especially if, uh, if some of these companies are actually to survive going forward as well. Andrew. Yeah. Well, the big picture question though is, should we expect to see an increased uh, spending and should we ex- expect to see an acceleration over what has already been a couple of years of large announcements from not just the new entrants, but the energy majors getting into the hydrogen space, getting into a lot, a lot of clean energy spaces. Uh, but to your point, they're, they're one of the few realms where you can get and absorb and deploy this kind of large scale capital that's needed. Should we expect to see increasing investments from these groups and from these companies in the coming years or do we think it's going to tail off i know it's hard to it's reading tea leaves guys but maybe some thoughts around that uh, i can uh, take a first crack i mean look I, I think politically there is unbelievable pressure on them to do something i mean not only are, are there threats of windfall taxes given the amount of money that's going through the oil and gas sector at the moment um partly is a war of ukraine but partly is also a result of underinvestment um, in oil and gas infrastructure as demand globally has grown um unfortunately and also the fact that you know post covid there was this massive boom in demand so there's huge amounts of profits being generated and an enormous pressure to see that being put to some kind of good use and some kind of future investment. So uh, I think the short answer is that there needs to be in there. There almost certainly will have to be more investment from the majors in hydrogen. Um, The question is going to be, you know, sort of where effectively where and in what form does that investment take place? You know, I think there's clearly the case that the oil majors are looking for where they can some kind of government back support um, you know, and that's going to create all sorts of quite complicated dynamics, in my personal opinion, because, you know, the politics of providing subsidies to large energy companies to do renewable projects at a time of pressure for households and rising government debt is not a good place to be. But at the same time, they do have investors um, who are expecting them to make certain returns, and those returns are relatively high. Um, I think this is something that the guys at other energy companies have really struggled with, which is when your oil and gas assets earn 15 to 20 percent IRR, some of them are even higher on the upstream. How do you convince investors that are used to that level of return and that level of dividend to move towards renewables where, 
you know, potentially there's less risk on some of the development and, and, and some of the upstream exploration. But, you know, your IRR returns are also adjusted to be much lower, you know, 7 to 10%, maybe in some cases, even lower than that for onshore renewables. So I, I just don't know. I, the money needs to come there. They have the money, but uh, time will tell whether they deliver. Patrick, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think there's another element to this also, which is that there's a a, a pre-baked hypothesis that those returns that have been observed in um, fossil uh, energy extraction and provision are going to be there going forward. I think that is probably going to become a, a more risky bet um, for very very straightforward reasons. Number one, you know, as uh, things like potentially carbon taxes start to come into being to some degree or that uh, end consumers start to want carbon tracking or demand carbon tracking, that becomes a challenge. Um, other things that we've seen, you know, the uh, the carbon uh, adjustment, uh, order adjustment that the European uh, Union might well be deploying, you know, stuff like that, regulatory burden and regulation or, or recognition maybe of footprint starts to become something that matters. So so I, I question the the likelihood that those returns are going to be uh, realizable in perpetuity, right? In the same way. And on and on the other side, it's 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 really a case of th- these are your sectors, if you will, as an incumbent, right? And are you willing up to, to give up your market share as somebody else potentially develops those projects and transitions away or offers a product that could be perceived as a premium or a preferential alternative? And, and I suspect the reality is uh, nobody wants to give up that, right? And, and yes, maybe there's going to be different challenges and maybe there's going to be uh, different rates of transition. But at the end of the day, um, if we expect that a hydrogen market is going to be, you know, pick your, pick your study, six, 800 million metric tons, 2050, and it's about 120, 130 million metric tons today, you need a very, very strong logic for not getting involved in this market and uh, trying to maintain a position as an energy supplier at scale, right? So I, I think there's a few uh, fundamental pieces here that that we can't let uh, drift out of sight, but also, you know, there is no business as usual. That day is gone and um, and people will need to adjust to that. Well, look, on that bombshell team, I think we uh, we should wrap this one up. Really good to get your thoughts on this. Um, you know, obviously a big thank you to Shell for coming on the show. Um, really good to kind of get, you know, a few different perspectives there as well. Um, we are being a little bit slower over the summer, as you guys may have noticed, our very much respected and admired listeners. We are hoping to have uh, another episode out for you at the end of this month, end of July. Um, we'll take a brief break over August with one more episode uh, likely released during that month. And we'll restart again in September. But for now, from all of us here at Everything About Hydrogen, thanks very much. We'll speak to you again soon. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Paul Bogers, Vice President for Hydrogen at Shell, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Bye.